class. Um, we're probably going to do it on, on Wednesdays for about anywhere from six to eight weeks, I believe is what it's going to end up being. Um, it will be thematically focused on cultural negotiation. It will operate, if you all remember, a few summers ago, my wife, um, Emily, taught a, a class on sexual ethics, um, which was, we had to, we had to um, limit that to 20 people or less and not give any kind of online publicity just so people could have honest, clear conversations. You you could imagine that that has a little bit more sensitive content. This is not quite as sensitive, and I am not going to be limiting it, but we'd love to see, and and we also required a little bit more attendance in that one. If you have an opportunity to come in and and, and in and out of this class, it's going to be okay if you have that a little bit. So I don't want you to say, well, I can't be at all of them, so I'm not going to show up. This is not quite as sensitive in the information or in confidentiality, and so I want to invite anyone to be a part of that. And once again, this will be like a teaser trailer for this idea. And so the question is, why are we even teaching a class on cultural negotiation? Well, there's a few answers. You hear Pastor Ken and I talk about cultural negotiation all the time. And so we always get this question, what do you even mean by that? What, what are you talking about when you say we're culturally, we're always in this office talking back, we share an office, so it's like, hey man, let me talk to you about something. Okay, let me, let me give you an answer. And it's almost this permission that all love idea comes out of this permission that we give each other that since we know we're both about this end goal, we can, we can push back and forth on each other and volley ideas. Well, have you thought about this? Well, okay, well, have you thought about this? And have you thought about this idea? And so we go back and forth with these negotiations, but you have to have some understandings when you have those conversations in the first place. And so one of it is just answering that question, what is cultural negotiation? Um, And so we're going to teach on it. We want to give it some time to really let it breathe, have some discussion. The second thing about this is that this is a kind of training that has the ability to root us in the coming state of global Christianity, which is quickly becoming more and more diverse and taking on new expressions all the time. The global center, listen, I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise. Maybe it will be. I'm not sure. But, but the global center for Christianity is shifting. I'm going to read to you a quote from a book called The Next Christendom. It says this, over the last century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted inexorably away from Europe, southward to Africa and Latin America, and eastward toward Asia. Uh, sorry, Asia. Today, the largest Christian communities in the planet are to be found in those regions. If you want to visualize a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. In parts of Asia, too, churches are growing rapidly in numbers and self-confidence. As Kenyan scholar John Mbidi has observed, the centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Athens, Paris, catch Western, Western, Western. You, you, you catching that, right? Bueno, uh, sorry, Geneva, Athens, Paris, London, New York, but in Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. Whatever Europeans or North Americans, catch this, if you checked out, I know it's a long quote, bring it, bring it back in. Whatever Europeans or North Americans may believe, Christianity is doing very well indeed in the global south, not just surviving, but expanding. Okay, so, so while we have this inner circle conversation in America that Christianity is fading and all of these things, the rest of the globe is experiencing massive growth. And so it makes sense, and we've tried to build this into our discipleship processes. This isn't new to us. We've, we've tried to make this a part of the systemic way in which we disciple our congregation is to expand their understanding culturally and also to seek justice in the midst of those things. And so what we want to do is to um, lay ourselves at the feet of others who are maybe learning to move past where we've been, all right? 
A recent article was just sent to me this last week, one of our congregants that affirmed this idea. The future of American Christianity is neither white evangelicalism nor white progressivism. The future of American Christianity now appears to be a multi-ethnic community that is largely led by immigrants of the children of immigrants. And if the American church can embrace this future and reverse its shrinking, it, and reverse its shrinking membership, it will have experienced its own resurrection. Okay, so, so we are prepared and we can become as a church, a community that is both hospitable to the coming multicultural expressions of the church that will likely be different than our own experiences, and we have an opportunity to become a prophetic community, a kind of first fruits for what is a coming reality on the globe. I want both of those things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, want, I want to be both of those things. And so, and so God has given us this conviction early on to move in some of these directions. So it's my hope that our church will equip you then to be that, to enter into that season well and not falter and not stumble and not see this as a stumbling block itself because this is a good thing, okay? So two other things. If you want to be ministers of racial reconciliation, of reconciliation on, a, on an individual or communal level of any kind of reconciliation down to just apologizing for saying something ridiculous in passing to someone, we have to equip ourselves to be bridge builders. So, so you know us. If, if you've been a part of our community, we are decidedly anti-racist. All right, that's not a new thing. That is a decision that we have made. But where do people become bridge builders to come on the edges and say, hey, this is new to me. If you speak like that, like we, we want to protect marginalized communities from the front up here. But then there's going to be this place where you have to have this interaction where people can be safe. Like, I don't even know if this is uh, bigoted or rude or prejudiced. I don't know. Can I say it in front of you and let me feel that with you? There has to be a place for that. All right. So that place Belongs in your work and your schools, right? Maybe not in, in the middle of your work session, on a break, on something else, right? In your neighborhoods, at your homes, at your tables. That's where the bridge building space of common ground exists as you have that conversation with someone. And, and, and what I want you to see is that we want to equip you, and that's exactly what this class is meant to do. We want to equip you to have those cultural negotiations in a way that you understand what's going on, in a way that you have categories to think about this stuff, in a way that creates a posture that is uh, not defensive walking into that, all right? And, and that's going to benefit you no matter where you're at, but I also want to do one more little thing. The coming state of our neighborhood, and what do I mean by that? Well, at, at one church um, that I was at, we were in the edge of this changing neighborhood demographic. Um, there was um, becoming more and more uh, Spanish-only signs in the area, um, and then there was like certain, certain businesses that as they moved out and further um, into the, the, the edges of the suburbs of Phoenix, what we started to see is other things that would make more sense to the ethnic demographic that was moving in, and so there's a carniceria, all right? Did I say that right? Did I say it right? Yes, maybe. Correct me later. But, but you see, there's a, there's a shift, and people see that kind of thing. And so as I'm thinking of it, I'm like, so how do we prepare for this thing? What if we taught Spanish um, inside of our church? Because then we're doing two things. We are, being a, a, we are creating in our hearts the ability to be welcoming and hospitable, because what would be more hospitable than you coming in and not knowing if anyone knows your language and they, they respond to you in your own language? 
So there's a hospitality, but it also, who's going to teach Spanish-speaking classes? Well, Spanish-speaking people, so it puts the non-Spanish speakers under the authority of the Spanish speakers. And they learn what it means to kind of humble yourself and to be in this place where you have to think through these things. Now, as we were doing this, a lot of people were like, why would we do that? Well, here's what happened. I went down to another church, a larger Nazarene church in the downtown area-ish of Phoenix, and I had this conversation with their pastor, um, and he said, oh, that's interesting, something similar. Because I'm like, well, what do we do to prepare for this? I have one idea. It's to teach Spanish-speaking classes, right? And we'll, and we'll have this interaction, this a mutual exchange going on. Well, well, he said 20 years ago, we had to make a decision as a church leadership to become a, what he called a holdout for the existing congregation or, a trans, or transition with the neighborhood, and we chose to transition with it. I said, well, what happened when you did that? And he's like, Oh, a mass exodus of our members. And he kind of looked at me. He's like, it's white flight, man. Like, there's this, like, hey, you understand what's going on? Like, you don't realize this is just, this happens. And so he, he was being kind of, you know, in this context, it was very helpful for me because I asked him then this question. I said, well, where did all those people go? And this is what he says. And you don't know the context. I'll fill in the gap for you in just a second. He said, well, they moved to the suburbs at 67th Avenue and Bell which happened to be literally the cross streets that the church I was on was at. So all the people that left you went out here and just like the cycles naturally happen, then it's gonna happen again and I'm already seeing people move out and further and churches being built to accommodate white western sensibilities further out and so it's this, this thing that happens, right? And you either choose, right? What, what you're gonna do with this, this is a cycle that is over and over so what we have to do as a church is make a decision and if we didn't do something about it to prepare the congregants, it would just have the exact same result and, and I'll be honest, even if we do prepare a congregation for something like that, we might might still have the same results. Because paradigm shifts are much more difficult than just an eight-week class to understand. And so I want us to walk into this uh, understanding that we believe a similar crossroads is happening right here at 75th and Hague. There is a cultural demographic shift that's taking place in the neighborhood around us with a focus like ours, with a church like ours, the decision to go in the, in the, um, in the direction that we have, this, this question should just be a no-brainer. Will we transition or become a holdout? We're not becoming a holdout. So there's this idea of we want to be integrative and we, want to, we, we see that we are poised very well to have in our, in, inside of our congregation and make a decision that would likely put us a little further than maybe the average church would, but is always, always a little further behind than we would like to think we are. All right, And so what we want to do is to recognize that, understand that it's going to take some more work inside of us to be hospitable to other cultural expressions. And so as I've observed inside of this, the other question that kind of comes to mind is, um, if you haven't realized it, we have a lot of people who come off the mission field and then enter into our congregation. A lot of people that do that. And so one of the questions is, why are they drawn to our church? What is it about that specific group of people that has been um, decentered by immersion, by going into another country that was not their own, that has had these other things? Well, I started to say, what, what is it that they have? And I think what it is is that they were prepared for c- cultural negotiation before they went out. 
They were prepared like, hey, you're going you're gonna to become defensive when things feel unfamiliar. You're going to become, um, it's going to be real difficult and you're going to go through this cycle on uh, in your own emotional roller coaster that's going to happen. But look, we're going to tell you before it happens so that when it happens, you can locate yourself in it and wade through those waters a little bit better. So the good thing um, in, in, our, um, in our world is that we have an entire New Testament that is almost only cultural negotiation. Over and over and over again. I'm going to give you some suggestions. I'll give a couple pieces today, but I'm going to give you some suggestions for future reading. Um, uh, and I will say when it comes to, it, it is a little different, right? It, it's not exactly a one-for-one comparison. When as an American, when I go to other places, most of the time people are pretty hospitable to me and, and wanting to welcome me and, and give me my preferences. That's often true. And so it's not even just a one-for-one in terms of it, but there is this set of, of tools that, that we want to equip ourselves with um, in the midst of these things. So um, here's a couple of things that I'm going to throw at you. Um, this is going to be the book, the text that I use. Um, this is used typically for um, preparing missionaries to go into cultures that are not their own. It's called A Beginner's Guide right, to Crossing Cultures, Making Friends in a Multicultural World. As I've read it personally, um, this was recommended to me, as I read it personally, it actually is in reverse of that. This is our, our country is changing. Are you ready and culturally capable of having those conversations? So this fit way better for my purposes than even I understood. If you want to just read this book on your own, feel free to read this book on your own. This will be the main text that we use for that class. The second thing that I would love to put in front of you is a book that I have benefited from over and over and over again. I had to read it numerous times, and then I just recently reread it and found even more gold inside of this. But Justo Gonzalez wrote a book called Santa Biblia, and it's, uh, the subtitle is The Bible Through Hispanic Eyes, all right? If you have any chance to get this book, it's finally on Kindle, so I was able to get it. Um, this, has, uh, this has so many examples of, like, if you come from a majority context, you probably view this but like this. And if you come from a minority context, you will read that same scripture, and these are the things that we'll emphasize, and these are the things that we would point out inside of preaching that. And I cannot tell you how helpful that little perspective shift has been for me and my walk with God. So if you have a chance, Justo Gonzalez, Santa Biblia, um, and, and those will be kind of the, the main ones that we do. Um, this is, this is um, here's, here's kind of where the first place, so we'll bust out the whiteboard here. Um, Anytime somebody has an interaction with, a, with another culture and they are immersed and they are denied their preferences on a large scale, not just, look, I didn't get my, my song of choice this morning or I didn't get, you know, to do it, but I'm saying like full immersion, you're really in a place where everything is unfamiliar, the food's different. What ends up happening is there's like this, this U-shaped curve. You come into it with, with these high expectations, um, and then you have this kind of moment where at first this high expectation is kind of like that Indiana Jones feeling. Everything's new. I'm loving this. I, I, I'm having a great time. I'm trying new foods. And then there's a point where you realize, uh, but, but every once in a while, I would like to have a Big Mac. But every once in a while, I kind of want to like see a sign that's in English so I know where exactly I'm going. Every once in a while, I'd like to see something familiar. And what happens is you actually have this, this little depression that takes place. And you will either, you guys know the term, flight or fight. There's a couple more being added, fawn and something, freeze, I think is the other one. And what happens is you become defensive. Well, well, if you would just do it the right way, 
If you would do it my way, if you would do it, you'd, you'd know that making a recipe requires tablespoons and, and, and half a tablespoon and a cup here and there instead of like, well, how much do you put in? I don't know, to taste. You t- it's a pinch of that stuff. You get, get a little bit of salt and throw it in there and taste it and find out. Well, this would be so much easier if you just use a bunch of measurement tools that I am very used to, and you could just hand me a list of all of the different things in the order. You see, you see what I'm saying, how quickly it is? That's, that's two different ways of creating the same recipe, but one uses very uh, familiar to Western sensibilities the way to do that. And so you have this fight or flight response, and that can sometimes um, stay there for a while. And then eventually you start to get over yourself. <laughs> You start to understand, man, I, I, I'm good with this. Like, your, your flexibility is stretched to the point that, like, I can roll with some things even if I don't know what's going on. And you start to come out of this until you eventually get to a place where you've just acclimated and you are fit. They usually, I'll use the terms that they use. You have the first part that's called the fun, I call the Indiana Jones fun honeymoon phase, right? Then you come down into this flight So you avoid the cultural things. You try to find anything you can that's familiar. You fight. You become defensive. You become angry. You start to accuse that of being the wrong way instead of the right way. And then eventually as you pull out of that, it says fit. And I want to use this description. You have a higher tolerance. Things are different, but okay. Understanding is different and reasonable to me now. Creativity becomes a value where now it's just not different and okay, but man, I can see in a diverse way how this other thing could really benefit me. Maybe this is uh, even a better way than I was taught to do whatever it is that I'm being taught to do. So you have this creativity that's developed in it, different and open to the integration of this newer culture. Okay, so, so check this out. In our context, if this happens around us, as opposed to us knowing what we're getting into, dropping into any kind of culture that's ours, if, if you have a more suburban, typically white, affluent orientation, the neighborhood changing will be an adjustment, and you can expect that at some points you're going to have some of these things happen. Because it's not a culture that is um, native to your understanding. It requires the ability to selflessly decenter ourselves. And look, we've been on um, this, this um, route of understanding that for a very long time, but I think it's going to be even more than we've gotten used to, beyond the work that we've already done, that there's still some more work to be done with personal preferences, how we even evaluate the cultural differences around us. We will have to adjust in this microscopic thing, but actually build out into this life of communal understanding understanding of what even basic assumptions of life are. It takes a heart posture of all love to do that. That's why we took so much time to really look at that. That we can take a couple of uh, a direct, like, hey, have you thought that that's kind of offensive? Can, can you take that without being so defeated, so hurt that it's like, man, I just don't know what I'm doing. I can't do this anymore. It takes a heart posture of all love and curiosity which would be where that class starts. How do we develop a heart of curiosity for the coming cultural shifts? And we see this entire movement inside of the gospel translate. Like you, you all have seen, I thought about doing it again, but I'm going to save you the theatrics. You've seen, if I have a glass of water, right, and it's filled up, if I have a bottle of water, all right, I'm going to bust out. We've got to do some rep for the... For the youth group, this is my best version of the water bottle that they just bought, right? It says youth or something on here. 
So if I were to do this, you all know this story. I'm just kind of reminding you of it. If I were to take this water and the water is the gospel, it's H2O no matter what container I put. I put this container. If I pour it into this, then the H2O takes this shape and it looks a little bit different. If I pour it into this thing, it's going to take a little bit different shape. If I put it inside of a bowl, it's going to take that shape. You all get the point, right? It doesn't change, but it looks different. So here, if we take that analogy just to one step further, what happens when you get to prefer this shape so much? much that you're like, bowl? What are you doing, bowl? And bowl's like, youth water bottle? Why do you have stickers on you? That's not how we do that. I got a rubber grip. I don't want to drop it. Yeah, but if I use both hands over here on this bowl, I've got an opening. I can use a spoon. I can drink out of this however I want, lift it up, and then, then out of nowhere, bottle's like, nah, man, you got to come in with me. Bottles are the way to hold the H2O. Do you understand what I'm saying? These things start to clash and then they start to make assumptions about each other and they always hold on to their preferences. So we take that, that, that basic understanding, but what about when those containers begin to interact? You're not a vase, well, you're not a plastic bottle, you're not a bull, and we start to take sides. And there's some general principles that I want to throw at you from the scriptures, and then we're going to land in Acts 17 for a short stint. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I know this isn't up there. The, the Acts one I think will be up there. Uh, I just didn't get these in on time. But, but catch these general principles. Anytime there is potential for conflict, we have to be loving. We have to be compassionate. We have to not repay even offenses or evil for evil, but, be, be, but pay back evil with blessings. Sympathy is cultivated, right? So love, sympathy, compassion, they're the foundation of these relational understandings. But then it says this, well, preach the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So maturity means that we interact with one another, that's going to be difficult. A hand can't be a foot and a foot can't be a stomach. They all don't do the same thing. Somehow, if they can work together, we create a fully functioning, healthy body. But when we begin to fight against each other, it doesn't work. So you have to have this truth must be tempered with love and love must contain truth within it. And that can sometimes feel confrontational to us. All right, so hold on to those two ideas. I'm going to read Acts 17, 19 through 31. And what I want you, I'm going to read the whole thing all in one stint, so pay attention. And what I want to ask you is to pay attention to the way in which Paul interacts with these different um, cultures. Uh, actually, I added this just this morning. I'm going to read one part that's not in there because I didn't realize it was right at the beginning of this chapter. He actually first talks to the people um, in a Jewish context and then he moves on to the Gentile. This is what it says to the Jewish context. Just listen. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you <clears throat> is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews are persuaded and joined by Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Okay, so he goes in with some kind of uh, cultural acumen into the synagogue and begins to reason according to their scriptures. Now, this is what happens in verse 19. It says, and they took him and brought him to the meeting of Areopagus. This is a Greek, uh, 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 non-Hebrew, non-Jewish context where they said to him, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So they have piqued, he has piqued their curiosity. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. But catch, they are interested and curious as to the thing he is talking about. They have an open heart and posture to this, at least for now. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as have some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That was a poem written to Zeus. Therefore, since we are God's offering, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay. So, so what we have in there is multiple examples of him interacting with this other culture. He is uniquely, Paul is uniquely both a part of the Hebrew and the Greek culture, right? And so what we have is somebody who is adept at using these two different worlds. He is perfectly uh, a position to be a bridge between these two worlds, And so what he's doing right now is Paul is using his multicultural understanding. Some of his language is aggressive and direct. Some of it is open. Some of it is just an invitation. Sometimes it's more of a challenge. But what he's doing is saying, okay, if you're going to ask me, here's what we think. He is using some level of apologetic, meaning giving proof for this thing, both in the synagogue and now in the Areopagus. But ultimately, what I want you to see is that he is in real time kind of interacting with them using his cultural acumen. That he has gotten from something somewhere. And just like somebody who's innocent as a dove, wise as a serpent, he is using these things strategically. And so two things. Do you see how Paul is using his multicultural understanding to navigate the different cultures? He is a master. This is a a phrasing that I've heard over and over, um, and it's sometimes helpful, that there are things in every culture that we need to receive, redeem, and reject. Everything in every culture has things that just openly, they work with the gospel. Some things are maybe uh, needing to be redeemed. They're, 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 they can fit, but they need to be somehow repositioned to honor God. And then other things that are just in opposition to the kingdom of heaven, and they should be rejected. So Paul is in real time going from culture to culture. This is him. He goes from, from Paul and Silas to a prison. He goes to Thessalonica in Berea in Athens. Then he goes over to Corinth. Then he goes to Ephesus. Then he's talking to Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul is trying to get them equipped to go into a different place. He causes a riot in Ephesus. I don't think the cultural negotiation went very well in that situation. Not sure. Macedonia, Greece. Like, I can just go from page to page. So if there's an assignment, read Acts. 
Paul is doing this over and over and just kind of critically view it. What's he doing here? How does he even know that? How did he know this poem that was given to Zeus? So do you see Paul doing it? He's, he's deciding what to receive, what to redeem, what to reject. However, in this context, Paul is also using cultural competency for evangelism, but evangelism is not the only place that you need cultural competency. As we saw inside of the synagogue, he's already working with people in that context. But then if you go and read um, Acts chapter 15, what you're going to see is in their own context, them trying to decide in this council setting, well, there's new Gentiles coming in, and we required this of the Jewish people before, do we put that on them as a burden or do we not? Is there some things we need to keep, some things we need to change? This is all internal. They're deciding what cultural aspects are essential, which ones are not, and which ones need to be handed off to the Gentiles. So if you want that inter kind of circle in engagement, look at Acts 15 and see how it is. There's a lot of listening, by the way. It feels like as you're reading it, they say something and they just sit in silence for a really long time. That's something I'm not very good at. We see this in most of the negotiations between Jewish believers and Gentile converts. Acts 15 is a great example. So today, the squabble arises mostly out of differences. And by that, I mean today as in, in our day and age, what we will tend to have divisions on internal, inside of the Christian world is differences on doctrinal emphasis, practical ways that you apply the scriptures in your life, what convictions you hold, Right? Congregational practices, liturgical expressions, and different ways in which we handle those things. And so here's the big thing that I want you to begin thinking about, questioning, and asking you in your own heart. How much of what I embrace as, quote, biblical comes from the Bible? Or is it just a denominational expression that you picked up along the way? How much of it actually comes from the Scripture? How much of my understanding of the Bible is interpreted through something that was handed to me or from my uh, position, my social location, right? And that means, am I Christian? Did I grow up Christian or not? Right? I have a different perspective because I did not grow up Christian. So, so if you had these things emphasized inside of your, your, your um, uh, household, that's going to be different. There's going to be a stronger level of assumption. I came in with a lot of, um, a lot of skepticism. It's going to change based on your socioeconomic standing, how you read these things. That's why I wanted to put this Santa Biblia in front, of your, in front of your faces today. I want you to see the different ways in which he says, well, if you come from this thing, you, you might think of this, or you might emphasize this part of this parable. And if you come from this context, you might emphasize this thing. If you come from an honor-shame culture, you're going to really understand what's going on here. And if you come from something that's more fluid instead of a fixed culture, something that has more hierarchy and, 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 um, and, and structure inside of its social system, it's all going to to look different. It shifts the way that you engage the scriptures. So, so how much of what, what you take in as you just read on your own personally is being interpreted through the experiences that you've had, the standing, the social location. If you are a male or a female, you might read the Hebrews Hall of Fame a little bit differently. In fact, I saw someone teach the Hebrew Hall of Fame where they say, this person acted in faith and this person acted in faith and this person acted in faith and he mentions women inside of that perspective and the person preaching it just so happened to exclude the women. Would a woman teach on that that way? Heck no. I, I mean, I got stronger language. You did that because you are a male-centered person. And you skipped the one heroine listed in this whole thing. Why? Oh, I'm sorry, I must have forgot. Come on. There's a bias at play. And the thing is, we all have biases. 
This is us just surfacing these things and allowing the ones that we recognize to be negotiable. Do you understand? So, so ethnicity is a part of this. Past hurts and traumas. There are times that I read something in the scripture and I'm like, I don't think I like that. I don't like the idea that it says if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek because I grew up in a way that said if someone slaps you, you're gonna make sure that you handle business. I don't like that because I've been hit and, and now I'm being confronted by this. And so there are parts of us that just are past experiences and I'm not even trying to delegitimize those things. I've been in situations where I got beat up so when I heard that, when I read that, I'm like, oh, come on, man. So you're saying I can't defend myself. You're saying, well, well, well let's, let's dig into this. Let's submit to the authority of God in this situation. Let's see what he's actually talking about. Did it apply to second grade Eric who got jumped at the apartment complex? That's not necessarily what he's talking about, but, but, but does it play? Okay, so, so, so this, is, this is the idea of what we want to do. This is today us kind of bringing these things to service. Minority status creates a culture. We've talked about this. The less dominant group learns ways to move around the majority. That's a quote from our very own Pastor Ken Rush. Majority culture has these lenses. We read something through the eyes of the person who's usually in authority and in charge, while somebody who's in a minority culture reads it from the position of Hagar and Shifra and Pua or Mary Magdalene. Do you catch what I'm saying? I'm trying to like give multiple examples. How do we get a sense for what teachings are primary, secondary, or other? All right, if, if we're in a communion uh, context in the Catholic Church, there's a higher emphasis placed on communion than most other denominations. So why? Tell me about that. How can I approach that and learn? Maybe I'm de-emphasizing communion to the extent that I've got some, some way to come towards you in this. Can I tell the difference between my personal convictions and ones that are more universal truths? You guys get the point. These are all just questions I'm asking. So the first thing I want you to do is to recognize yourself and understand that you have a location. For many of you, this is like, of course, obviously, man. For some of us, this might be new. And so let's make some room for that, to sit somewhere and say, okay, where am I in my social location? What things could cause me to maybe read the scriptures in a way that favors my position and where I'm at? I told you all over and over how hard I struggled with that. You know, coming, coming from a, a, a low-income um, context, how hard it was for me to see someone say um, the rich young ruler parable and then quickly give that, that rich young ruler a pass. You know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for this person to come into. But but that doesn't mean. I mean, that's surely it's the love. Of, it doesn't mean having money. It's just the love of money. And honestly, there's a heart issue that's going on in this situation. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like I, I get it. I got nothing else to turn to. You, you see how that plays out differently, and then we'll give ourselves a pass. And look, coming from my context, I'm also going to give a pass to that turn the other cheek situation sometimes, right? You see how we'll, we'll play them in our favor. So, so here's some things that have come up here just even in our context. Um, uh, uh, in our negotiations, um, Pastor Ken and I's negotiations, um, we've, con- we've had conversations where there are certain special big events where we have said in, in Pastor Ken's um, um, uh, context, they would have worn full robes to really have that liturgical expression in a moment where, look, this is important. And in a context like ours, we have minimized things, right? We come from that post-hippie world that's like, we're gonna wear sandals up on stage. Sorry, Caleb, if you're wearing sandals, man. I'm not trying to, you, you may have been, literally done that today. Yeah, okay, cool. 
but, but, but you see, like, we come from this, like, a low context kind of idea where that stuff isn't as big a deal. So if you come from a higher, like, uh, uh, a higher, more, um, what do you call it, more organized context, structured context, that could be offensive to you. That, that is offensive to you. But then we're like, well, tell me why we should wear robes. That seems a little bit high churchy, a little bit more. So, and and um, let me say this one quote um, that I think that was really helpful. Because along the way, we have continuously um, asked Pastor Ken, can you explain to me that change that you'd like to make here? Can you give me an idea of what you mean by that? Hey, get, get, let's go out to lunch so I can ask you why um, I, I would have to do that or say this thing or worship in that way or do this thing. And it's funny because he said, you know, everyone here needs an explanation. Are you cool with me saying this, man? I'm all, like halfway through it. I'm halfway through it. I, sh- I should have asked you this this morning. But it's important. Everyone needs an explanation for every change that I want to make, but I do things all the time in this context and nobody bothers to give me an explanation. I just have to go with it because it's the assumption. How we take communion, that was just assumed. We didn't stop and say, let me give you the theology why we do this so that you can, he's like, no, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to step into this. I've I've decided to do this with you. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to do this and I'm going to learn along the way. But the problem is that we tend to have a struggle when, when it's our side to say, well, let me learn along the way. Let's just wear robes on Sunday and see what happens. Some of y'all would have freaked out. (laughs) Right? And so there's got to be room for this, this conversation to come, a posture, so, and I'll, I'll end with this. When these things get challenged and we don't have an awareness of our location, when we don't have categories, I've mentioned a few. This, this, the beginning of this book has multiple lenses for you to think in little boxes. Okay, is this structure fixed or fluid? Is this structure high context or low context? Is this structure more egalitarian or more structured? Is this a situation where we focus on that this is a doing kind of organized society or a being organized society? And some of these categories are ones we've never even heard of. But what I want you to know is there are categories and ways to think about this. And if I'm 100% honest, let me take, let me take this and just kind of just dig in a little bit. By me teaching this class, I'm already handing you your preference that you want to be taught how to do this first. Do you see, do you see how that's happening? So I even recognize to remove this barrier, I'm going to have to teach us this and this and give them these tools and do these things. And it's not like you can't ever ask why. It's just that the assumption tends to be, well, if you bring something new, why? And if we want to ask um, uh, someone who doesn't come from our congregation to do it, it's just like, follow suit, man. Just jump in. All right? So, so, so here's my plug for this and why I hope. And again, the, the details, the dates, it's probably gonna be Wednesday, probably in the evening. Um, I'll get all of these things out to you here pretty soon. Um, but but it, is, it, is, it, it is important for us if we wanna um, engage in this new global um, transition, engage in this neighborhood transition, just to become hospitable, prophetically uh, social people for us to create a heart posture going into this that is curiosity and open and let me learn from this. And, and I wanna believe that there's a diversity here that I have not gotten until you got into my, uh, 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 into my view. And now I wanna learn from that. Ways of organizing the differences in your head so it makes sense. Learning to embrace the chaos, that learning something new is hard. In fact, one of the reasons, um, I haven't shared this a lot, but one of the reasons I, I joined boxing, why I decided to do boxing, is I had no in any way, shape, or form, any kind of training in that. And I wanted to feel, somebody said this to me, um, that they joined uh, a a discipline that they knew nothing about because they wanted to feel what it was like 
to not know how to do something and walk through that process of being so humbled. Like, I'm really bad at the basic stuff here. This is embarrassing. Every punch I throw in that first month was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is a joke. I just need to step out. And you know how hard that stuff is. So, so it's a good practice to understand that when you go into something new, you have to embrace that tension, that gray area. The, the, the idea of getting used to that chaos is going to be something that we need to do. And then ultimately, we've thrown around Revelation 7, 9. It, get mentioned, it gets mentioned here a lot because it's so important to who we are, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented in the kingdom of heaven to come and at that banquet table this is what I think would be the vision that draws us to this idea if we integrate in a way that is honoring and hospitable and we change with the demographic of the world around us and specifically our neighborhood then one day we're going to throw a pitch in or a potluck with the most beautiful diversity around the table How many of y'all remember when we had the pitch in with El Shaddai, the Indonesian church, and they brought the best food to that? The most delicious arrays of food with the most beautiful expressions of church practice, liturgies, music, art that we've ever seen with testimonies of the saints who have done, seen, and experienced things that we haven't seen. And I need your witness to fill that gap in because I never even knew that was possible that God is the God who does things like that. And you need my witness so I can fill in all the gaps that you have. Have you ever been around someone who had an experience with God that you had never considered before? This is an open invitation. God, stretch me, move me. Make my view of your kingdom bigger than I could ever understand so that when we go out for that potluck, we actually look around and we can see the banquet table just sitting there before us. This is the idea where we get to see parts of Christ we had never known existed. I've quoted this before, but a a missiologist, his name is Andrew Wells, he said that we won't know the fullness of our spiritual practices until we see uh, Christianity on the globe. And so there is a gift of Christianity, a part of Christ that was given to those in India that we don't understand until we get into community with somebody who's Indian. There is a gift of Christ, a part of Jesus that was given to somebody in the Congo that I won't know until I get around that person and we share what God has brought us through and I understand a part of God through him that I could not have understood outside of that. And the ultimate idea is we get to know Jesus better around that table and we actually get a chance to experience heaven right here on earth before it is made in its fullness. So I want that. Um, I want to invite you. It's not the be all end all if you can't make this class. No shame, no guilt. Grab that book, snatch it up and start to, to, to work on these things in your heart. But this is our prayer moving forward in our congregation right now that we would be so well equipped that, that, that we could have these bridge building conversations for people who are still kind of walking in the earlier parts of that, that we could continue to decenter ourselves and benefit from that diverse expression of God's people throughout the earth. Um, are you with me? <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, let's, let's pray for that and let's ask God to make this true. Yeah, God, um, I just thank you for a church like ours that is courageous, that has done some things and, and, and yet maybe there's still some courage left to dig up out of ourselves. Maybe there's some empowerment that's still left to be dug up. There's some common ground still yet to be found. Maybe there is a part of us 
that is still learning the fullness of what it means to seek justice in our day and age. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this community. I pray, Lord, that we would engage not just for the sake of of our own benefit, but that there would be a hospitality to somebody who had formerly been the other but now feels included, that there is a place for us to dig into different cultural differences and those moving in right next door to us, Lord, that we would taste the tastes and see and smells and all of the different varieties that make Orthodox Christianity what it is. This kaleidoscope of God that you are, Lord, give us a few more colors. Give us a few more shapes. Give us a few more perspectives, Lord. That we would be both hospitable but also a prophetic community in the midst of a changing world. Could we be there before it is forced on us? Because we're seeking it. Because we love it. Because we are excited to participate in that. Yes, Lord. We ask for all of these things right now and we ask them to be true only through your power, Jesus. And we ask for it in your name. All God's people said, amen.